everybody wants to experience God and experience his glory in a deeper and more, more profound way. Maybe one of the best sections to look at about that is this section in the book of Exodus as Moses requests, Lord, can I see your glory? This sermon was originally recorded at Castle Rock Middle School, August 4th, 2013. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. We are still in the book of Exodus. As I said, we have been here all summer, and you thought it was going to end in July. That's not true. We still have two more weeks. So this week, and we're going to be talking about God's glory, and then next week is the last week that we're going to be in the book of Exodus, and hopefully you've enjoyed it for that, that long journey, but we're trying to do it the whole length of Grow Groups. We have a couple things starting up next week. Um, church Picnic and New Members Sunday is next week. We've got a cornhole tournament, which is uh, the same thing as like beanbag toss. We're pretty excited about that. We're bringing in barbecue from Hickory House. So all you have to bring is some kind of side. So if you have like a dessert or a um, salad or something like that, you can bring that. But we've got uh, barbecue and we're going to have ribs and chicken and it should be pretty good. So that's next week after church at Bison Park. So if you don't know where Bison Park is, we'll talk about it next week. So we're pretty excited about that. It might just be the most fun you've ever had in your life. Uh, so then the week after that, I'm out of town. We got Brooks and Lindsay are getting married, so I'm going up to Jackson Hole for their wedding, which is pretty, a destination wedding, which is pretty cool. So we're going up there, and people are going to look. Just Brooks is here today. So don't, don't associate him with any, just the closest female. She's not here today. So. And Lindsay's listening to this now, realizing that the whole church knows she, she's not here today. So that's perfect. We believe in guilt ministry here. That's what... So I'm gone next week, but Earl Trepto, he, Pastor Earl Trepto, he's the district president for our three states, and he's going to be here. He's a really good preacher. I think you guys really enjoy that. The week after that, what makes a church grow? Then I consulted Tim Burton, who made uh, all those creepy movies, and you can't even see it. It is so dark. It says, death, hell, and the devil. If anyone, <laughs> I didn't really consult Tim Burton, but we, we're thinking about, have you noticed that the church and the world in general doesn't really like to talk about creepy things besides zombies. Zombies you can talk about all day long, but no one likes to talk about death, no one really likes to talk about hell, and no one likes to talk about the devil. And the question is, do these even still exist? I mean, everyone knows death does. And the church even, this, the cultural influence has pushed onto the church so that it's pretty rare that you're going to hear like a fire and brimstone preacher. It's pretty rare that you hear a preacher even um, threatening the devil and things like that. So has the devil like disappeared? That's going to be our, our series. It's really dark. We're going to send out a postcard. Uh, that's going to start up right after Labor Day. So we're going to do um, four weeks on that and then run into our next grow group, which is October. I think that's it for commercials. Uh, we are in uh, the book of Exodus and we're going to be looking. We're going to be talking about God's glory. They asked, uh, I read a survey, this is a number of years ago, that said, uh, people who had left the church, what would bring you back to the church? Number one answer, of course, was um, if someone invited them. But number two answer was if the church could somehow let them experience God in a deep and meaningful way. So I'm going to repeat that because I'm sure they didn't just fill in the blank like other. Experience God in a deep and meaningful way. But I think there is a desire, right? to experience who God is. There is a desire to have this relationship with God, and there's this sense that um, at their other experience, this really wasn't happening. They went through the motions, and it didn't seem like this was actually getting me some kind of relationship with God. The best place, I think, one of the best places to look at it is right here. So, a little bit of history, and, then, and we'll kind of end up here. Remember, Moses is born in the book of Exodus. 
and then uh, he, he's 40 years old. He murders someone. He's got to go to the desert. When he's 80, God calls him with the burning bush. We covered all these things. Then he goes and leads the people out. We have the 10 plagues and ends with Passover. Then they cross the Red Sea. So this is all making sense, right? Manna in the desert. They get water in the desert. The, we said five chapters are covered just for the commandments. This is where the chronology gets a little bit, little bit difficult. They go into the desert. And they go to the base of Mount Sinai. So picture in your head, what does Mount Sinai look like? How tall do you think Mount Sinai is? The traditional Mount Sinai. It's a sevener. It's 7,000 feet. This is the top of Mount Sinai. Is that kind of how you pictured it? It would take, on average, about two and a half hours to walk to the top. So when I was a kid... I lived in Wisconsin, so the biggest mountain we had was the trash dump. So it would have been like as high as this building. So I just pictured Moses like ran up to the top on our sledding hill. Plumman Park was the most epic sledding hill ever, which was probably about as high as the railing right there. But we'd go to the top. That's how I kind of pictured it as a kid. But really, this is a pretty big mountain and not quite the biggest one even in this range. So now there's a monastery up there. Um, people, as you can tell, travel by the droves to go to the traditional location of Mount Sinai. So um, Moses has gone up and down, it seems, uh, four times, and then a fifth time, which we covered last week, just very briefly, he goes to the top with his 70 elders. So the 70 elders uh, in Joshua, and they go all the way to the top, and they sit down, remember, and they had this meal. It was kind of an unusual thing. They have this meal, and it says they saw God, uh, but they only saw his feet, and then he had pavement like sapphire. It was just in the reading. I didn't cover it because I think it's confusing a little bit. So I just kind of skipped over it. The fifth time, this all gets done. So you're like, okay, they got the commandments. And then God says this to Moses. Uh, They just had this meal. He comes back down again. And God says, come up to me on the mountain and stay here. And I'll give you tablets of stone with the law and commandments I have written for their instruction. So scholars would believe, and I would agree, that it seems like this, the... um, this covenant that's made, this agreement, this contract they made wasn't quite finished. And to really finish it, you need to write this down in stone. And traditionally, they would have a copy for me and like a copy for you. But how do you normally picture the Ten Commandments written on stone? Here's an example. What is wrong with these Ten Commandments? Uh, number one, the stone is the wrong color. So I'm not going to get all technical, but that's not really the available stone on Mount Sinai. Uh, two, I don't think they came with a cool display ca- holder. That, that's number two. Uh, three, they're written in English. And the world does not rov- revolve around the United States. And the, so they're written in English. This is probably not how it went. I mean, if you, the scholars say, it does say they're written on both sides, but probably one side was um, Moses' side of it, and the other side was God's copy of it. That's probably what it was. So it was duplicate copies. So then probably you're most influenced by this picture. Does anyone recognize that gentleman? I know what you're saying. It's the the guy who checks you out at Costco when he was younger. I told you already he looks like Charlton Heston. So I did a little bit of research. I thought, you know what? I can't even read that writing. So this is actual ancient, ancient. So before the Hebrew that I know, um, it's the step before that. They call it paleo. So it's um, even earlier than that, and it's all shortened. So the Ten Commandments would not have been that short. I mean, God would be really amazing if he could write everything down with just like these little signs. And they they did miss the Third Commandment. So I mean, otherwise, it was pretty good. So these are made like out of styrofoam. styrofoam. If you want to buy a pair, you can. Guess how much they go for at auction? 
$60,000. So if you want Charlton Heston's commandments, uh, you can get them made out of styrofoam to look like, like stone for about $60,000. But here's the problem, just in case you know. As a promotion, they sent out over 2,000 to movie theaters, replicas. And so now there's question, like you see the pictures of all of them. They made six original copies, and now they, there's like 2,006, and they don't know if they're the real deal. But Here's a, maybe a better picture if you can see it. Uh, this is the granite that's available right by Mount Sinai. This is the complete commandments on it. There's an artist who does this. This would have been written on both sides, and this is an exact copy. It's just seen the flip side of it. Um, you would have two that looked about the same. So is that kind of how you picture the commandments, or you picture them like the perfectly round tablets? I always thought as a kid they were glued together for some reason. I don't know why. You know how hard it would have been to carve that little groove in there? But where are we getting at with this? Moses says, uh, God says, I want you to come up and I want the Ten Commandments, and then this is all going great, right? How long is Moses on top of Mount Sinai? A month and a half. So I don't know if the people didn't see that coming. That's a long time. I mean, imagine I'm camping with my kids. I'm like, hey guys, can you just hang out here? I'm going to just run up to, uh, run up to the top of the hill. I'll be back in 40 days. Well, hopefully the same thing does not happen to my kids as it happened to the people of Israel. They started to get restless, and of course, this is one of the, the nadirs, the low points in the people of Israel. There's a lot of low points, but this is one of the lowest, that Moses comes down with the brand new commandments in tow, and what does he see? He sees the people worshiping a golden calf that they had made. They'd taken their jewelry, they'd melted it, and they turned it into a golden calf, and they're worshiping it, which is really a throwback to the gods that they worshiped in Egypt. Moses is not happy, and what does he do? smashes the commandments, and then makes the people, he grinds up, just like coffee, grinds up the gold and makes the people drink it in their water to say, you take that. Well, this is not a good situation. This is kind of the low point. And now we're at chapter 33. This is the next chapter. And God says this, um, I'm going to make you a deal. This intimate relationship that we have, you know, me and you, and I lead you, and I take you to the promised land, and I provide for you, you know, this really isn't working. But here's what I'm suggesting. Uh, leave this place, you and the people you brought up out of Egypt. Go to the land I promised you. I'm going to just skip a sentence. I will give it to your descendants, so that sounds pretty good. I'll send an angel before you to drive out all the foreigners. We'll just say it that way. And go up to the land flowing with milk and honey. But I'm not going to go with you. Because I just might destroy you on the way. So what is good about this arrangement? Uh, is there anything good about this arrangement? They dream about going where? The promised land. God says, I'm gonna, this intimate relationship is not working. I'm going to let you go to the promised land. And you know what? There's going to be no maintenance fees here. There's no tabernacle. You don't have to worship. You don't have to bow down. You don't have to, do, you don't have to carry all this stuff. So it's like the Toyota of religion. You get all the benefits and no maintenance fees. That's what God is saying to them. I will bless you. You'll be successful. You'll get peace. But what's the problem? God says, I'm not going with you. So imagine this. It would be a similar situation. We've got a lot of the kids here because we don't have rock kids today. But imagine I promise my own kids to say, hey, we're going to go to Disney World, and I promise I'll take you to Disney World. And they say, that sounds super cool. And I get so mad in the car ride because if this is possible to imagine, you're on this uh, car trip, and you get so angry, you go, you know what? I'll pay for it. You guys can go. Go have your fun. Here's some money so you can get food. I'm going to wait in the car. That sounds actually pretty good. You could just live it up in Disney World. I mean, if I gave them each $652, they could eat three meals. I mean, it would be just perfect. That sounds good. But the people recognize what? 
the joy of going to the promised land is not just the destination itself. The joy of going to the promised land is being there with God. Just like my kids, I think. I could say to them, they go, hey, Dad, can we go to the pool? And this does happen. I said, uh, Isabella's old enough. I could say, yeah, you can go to the pool. And if she doesn't have a friend there or brothers or sisters, it doesn't sound that cool, right? The joy is being with other people in that location. They recognized immediately, this is not going to work. So Moses says, you know what? If your presence does not go with us, we'd rather, essentially, this is what he's saying, we'd rather die in the desert. It is better to die like in this desert, this forsaken desert, with hardly any food and water and eating the same thing than go to this promised land. We would rather stay here than go there without you. So then Moses makes a request. If you'd ask a theologian, so it gets kind of back to her question, how do you experience God in a deep and meaningful way? Moses has this desire to do that. But the question before we even get that, sorry about that, the question we get before that is if you'd ask a theologian, one who actually studies the Bible, what is the purpose of human beings, what would they say? Maybe just think in your own head. You are theologians. You've read the Bible. Um, What is a human being's purpose? To give God glory. I mean, that's really it. If you'd read Corinthians, um, whether eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Essentially, our function as human beings is to give God glory. The The question is, does God need our glory? Is that how he gets it? Is God kind of needy? Is God like codependent in a sense? Like people have asked this question, if God is all-powerful, why does he bother to create like this whole universe of beings that are just supposed to give him praise? Doesn't it seem a little bit strange? Well, the answer is God doesn't really need our power, and that's what we're looking at in our glory. This is from Jesus' high priestly prayer. And just to put it in perspective, Jesus has just um, instituted the Lord's Supper, and it's Thursday, so it's Monday, Thursday, instituted the Lord's Supper, and then they walk from point A to B. So B is, point A is in their upper room, and point B is on top of the Mount of Olives. On their way there, it doesn't seem that this happens in the room, but on their way there, Jesus offers this prayer. It's known as the high priestly prayer. And he says, "Uh, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that your son may glorify you. I brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had before the world began. How many times is glory mentioned there? I skipped some verses, but where does Jesus get his glory? Where does God get his glory? This will sound strange, from himself. From eternity, the triune God is giving glory to all parts of the triune God. I don't fully understand this. But the idea is this. God does not need you to give him glory. So what is the purpose? Why does God even have us on this planet if it's not just for, to try and gain glory from us? It's so that he can share his glory with you. And Moses realizes this. He says, it is better to die than to go into the best place I can imagine without you. Moses realizes to function as a human being, you need to be finding and experiencing God's glory. Which brings us back to our question. How do you experience God's glory in a deep and meaningful way? Well, God explains. Moses makes a pretty big request, don't you think? Um, Sometimes you just got to ask. He would have been an awesome salesperson. So Moses says, now show me your glory. Can you imagine saying that to God? God says, okay, um, Tell you what, Moses, you and the people can go 
because if I go along, I am so angry right now, I might just destroy you. I don't think my next question would be, show me the glory. I mean, it sounds like, let's see it. Let's prove it here. But Moses is Moses. So Moses says, now show me your glory. And the Lord says, I'm going to cause my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. The Lord said, there's a place near me where you can stand in the rock, and when my glory passes by, I'll put you in the cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I'll remove my hand, and you can see my back, but my face must not be seen. Two things. God is saying kavod is glory. It doesn't sound like kind of kavod. That's glory, and that's like the same idea as weight. The other idea, panim is face. I think when you read this, God is saying these are really the same thing. Because Moses says, I want to see your glory, and what does God say? Well, you can't see my face. So these are really the same thing. So as we try and walk and say, how as a human being do I experience God's glory? I think we have to look at what these words even mean. Uh, the word kavod, kavod Adonai is the glory of the Lord. Kavod has this idea of weight and a sense of weightiness. And if you're saying, have I experienced God's glory in my life? The question I would ask you is, have you sensed God's weight? Have you sensed that um, when you hear God say things like, be holy as I am holy, does that make you uncomfortable? God says, be perfect as I am perfect. Isn't there a sense of weight there? When you read it, we're going to read in a second, I do not leave the guilty unpunished. Does that leave a sense of weight and sense of awe and a sense of wonder? Churches have worked pretty hard to try and give this sense of awe and wonder. And this is maybe one of the disappointing things that we have when we worship in a school. Churches work really hard with architecture and symbolism to give this sense of awe and wonder and mystery with the holy God. We worship in a cafeteria. So we miss, I think, a little bit of that. But as a believer, you're saying, have I experienced God's glory? You have to say, Am I, do I feel God's weight? And what I mean by weight is not only God's holiness, God's rightness, but the fact that God, um, what you think doesn't matter, what God thinks does. And this idea that I need to submit to a holy and powerful and wonderful God. If you haven't felt that weight, I don't think you can fully experience the glory God is looking to experience with you. Uh, second thing is, we talked about with the kids a little bit. A kavod is weight, but then face, which is, seems to be a cinema, synonym in this instance, is face. Um, when you talk to people, where do you look? Ideally. You look at their face, right? Isn't it weird, like, if someone looks at, just looks at your shoes the whole time? Isn't that strange? Wouldn't it be strange if, like, you're on a date and you're like, uh, or when you got engaged, perhaps, and you go down one knee and you're kind of looking over in the distance, will you marry me? And then you look at the hands. I mean, wouldn't this be weird? Because what do they say? Their eyes are like the window of the soul, right? I mean, there's something to that. This is communication. What is Moses looking for, you think, when he said? He wants to see the face of God. He wants to have this relationship with God. He wants to have this closeness with God. And I think we could pull a couple things from that. One, you're starting to experience God's glory when you A, feel his weight, but B, when you get the sense that uh, the beauty of God and that God wants to communicate with you. If you have this idea that God is way far off and you just end with this scary, powerful God, I don't think you fully experienced who God is. But if you get this sense that God wants to communicate with you, 
that when you open his word, he's talking to you. When you read scripture, it says, this means something for me. Then you start to experience, this is my relationship with God. On the one hand, it's really weighty. On the other hand, there's this beautiful, wonderful um, beauty of God that says, I want to talk with you. Last thing, which kind of goes with this. Notice when they, um, they have this whole thing, and Moses comes to deliver the message. And he says, listen, this is what God says. This is a quote. This is me. This is God, not me. And you can just imagine Moses saying this. God said, you're a stiff-necked people, and he wants to destroy you, and he's not going to go with you all the way up to Israel. You guys want to go? You know, can you imagine how awkward that would be? And the people are like, and what do the people do instantly? Do you remember? They take off their ornaments, and they start to mourn. And they take their jewelry, actually, and they say, they give it, and they say, God. The third point we're going to make is, is when you experience God's glory, it, it's, it's going to be kind of a long point, and I'll end up how it lines up with that is you recognize God is all there is. God's it. The thing you're searching for, the thing you're looking to fill you up, is found in God. Your desire and fulfillment is found in God. There's a whole big difference. So you sense God's weightiness. You sense that God wants to talk to me. And as you're searching around for fulfillment and satisfaction and significance, you say, you know what? This can only be found in a being. The reason I bring up the money part is because there's certain things that give us significance that you don't mind spending money on, no matter how broke you are. So just think in your head, what is it that you never have problems spending money on? You got a couple examples here? I've got a few. I don't mind buying books. Buying book, you're like, you're such a nerd. Um, but I don't mind that you think I'm a nerd, and I'll tell you why. So I, so I read books, and then I read a bunch. I read like a book a week, and um, I enjoy this. And then someone comes up that goes, you read more than more, you know, like just about anybody I know. I'm like, you haven't met my wife. But, I mean, you, you read more than anyone I know. And what do you say? What's the nice thing to say? Thank you. But inside you go, I know. Right? I mean, have you ever, and you've invested money, like, in a cool outfit or something, and someone like, that outfit looks really great. And what do you say? Oh, thanks. But inside, what do you think? Yeah, I know. I know it looks good. Right? You put this effort. And what I'm saying is you don't mind, generally, spending money on the things that give you some significance. I've got another example, rec center. I like playing basketball. I'm not even especially that good. But Fridays, it's 5.50. No matter, I have no cash in my whole house. I can somehow find $5.50 to be able to go check in to go play basketball on Fridays. One of my favorite things to do. Why is that? Because I like that. I don't have money spending money on gear. So I feel like this outdoorsy kind of adventure person because I like that idea, right? It's the same kind of thing. What do you not have trouble spending money on? And I would guess a lot of that goes with you like the idea of what that portrays. If you like the idea that people think you're a good parent, you probably don't have trouble spending money on things and activities for your kids. And you find some significance in that. Or it's gear. Or you like that people think you're a good golfer. And then you, so you buy things in golf so you feel like you're even a better golfer. Or you like the idea that people, you know, you look so young for your age. I'm guessing you don't mind going to the salon and doing whatever. They don't say this to 22-year-olds, right? They say this to people who are not 22. We'll just say it that way <laughs> to save myself. Right, but you don't have trouble spending that money. And I'll give you even another example. We went to the 70s party. I have no pictures, thankfully. Went to the 70s party. I like that people think that some of the things I do is funny. Like I find a joy in that. So I went through great effort to look as ridiculous as possible. And that took time. It took effort. 
it took growing out my beard for two and a half weeks, you know, so it would be scraggly and it's bugging me and it looks terrible. So I'm meeting people that are probably like, can't you trim your beard, dude? But it was worth it. Why? Because I found some significance and feeling like I did something funny. I don't know what your deal is, but God is saying there's a pretty good idea where you spend your time and where you spend your money is where you find significance. And until you get to a point to say my significance is in God, it's going to be empty. To quote Tim Keller, you're only, you only last, your joy only lasts as long as the thing you love the most. And only God lives forever. So if you're finding joy in your family or your stuff or your jokes or your looks, it's going to be a disappointment in the end because that doesn't last forever. I think that's why God has such radical giving with these people. And he says, a minimum, give 10%. I think that's why God says 23.3, they figured it out. I think it's not that God needs their money. It's the sense that even as an individual, I need to give this money to God to put things in perspective. I need to sit down on a regular basis. I do. And say, where is my money going? Because left unchecked, I would have so much gear, so much junk that would try and give me significance rather than the real thing that gives me significance. Then God talks. So he passes in front of Moses and he proclaims, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Sounds good so far, right? This is like the best God ever. Sounds awesome. But then God says, He does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children to the sin of their parents to the third and fourth generation. How can God be so totally, totally loving and totally, totally a perfect judge? How can God say, I want all people to be saved and I want you to live with me, but at the same time, he says, if you sin once, that's that weight, right? If you sin a single time, you are separated from me. If you stumble a single time, like it's like an apostrophe mark, one yod, it says, you're guilty of breaking the whole law, you are separated from me. You cannot be in my presence unless you're perfect feel that weight. Yet at the same time, we see God's face that smiles and shines and says, I want you to be with me. How do these two function together? Moses only got to see God's back. We get to see God's face in his true glory. And when God says, I want the full punishment of the world to come down, it does on himself. And so Jesus dies, and we see God's compassion in his face as he says, in a sense, think of this, from eternity, Jesus had this perfect communion, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and for the first time in his life on the cross, he's ignored. And he is ignored so that you can be adored. And for the first time in his life, he's abandoned so that you can be found. Moses only got to see the back of the Lord. He only saw a glimpse of his glory, but you and I as believers today can see the whole thing. You can experience that glory, the weight that comes with God, his face, and a recognition, God, You're all that there is. Amen.